Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Johnny and Jenny Go Back to School, or Jenny and Johnny Go Back to School. My God, did we decide that yet? Class Good Lord. And no, we do not know. This is why I record nothing before 4 p.m., by the it. way. But <laughs> hey, listen, we're, we're going podcast verite here. We're leaving that in. But welcome, welcome, everyone, to Jenny and Johnny Go Back to School. Today, uh, we wanted to release kind of a, a second episode along with the first, uh, just to kind of demonstrate a little bit more of what a standard episode is going to seem like. Uh, and so today, we are going to be talking about critical race theory. But first segment we start off with before we jump into class, chatting in the hall. Jenny, yes. a question for you today. Were you a fan of your school's homecoming dances? Uh, I, I don't think I went to any homecoming dances. I think I went to like freshman prom or whatever that was. And then I yeah. went to uh, my, no, not even my senior. I was a junior. I went with someone else who's a, who was a senior. And I went because same sex couples couldn't go to prom at my school in 90. That would have been in 96. So uh, in order to, for him to go with his boyfriend, he took me and his boyfriend took another gal. And that's how I went to prom. But I did not even go to senior prom. What about you? Were you a fan of your school's homecoming dances, Johnny? No, no. I, I had a very similar. Uh, in seventh and eighth grade, I went to the uh, whatever their version of homecoming dance was, because I don't think they actually called it that. Um, and both times, I just hated it. Uh, <laughs> I, I really... I, to this day, to this day, I just don't like dancing. I, I, I no, understand. That's great for everybody. I'm so excited for people that like dancing. I hate it. I danced at my wedding because I think somebody tricked me into thinking that legally the wedding wasn't binding if I didn't. But other than that, like there was just, uh, we, we go to weddings now and, you know, my wife will look at me and be like oh you know let, let's let's go dance and i'm like you know other people here like <laughs> they can dance right now you don't have to and she'll inevitably break me for one song every night and you know it's oh it's always so much fun it's not fun it's i get never, it ever been fun to me i do my husband loves to dance we would talk about this um before we got married and i was like i do not dance i will not be dancing there will be no wedding dance and you know what johnny I ended up finding a song that I really liked and I thought, okay, we can at least do that thing where we just like kind of, kind of gently like embrace each other and just sway. Like we can do that for our wedding. And yeah. but he'd already, like I had already put the fear of God in him or something because he did not even suggest it at my wedding. And I regret it so much, which is really silly, but uh, you know, what do you do? That's so, so perfect that you guys relied on a dance form invented in seventh and eighth grade dances yes. of well, the, the holding can dance. it's me it's me mm -mm. well i mean if you're if you're married you can break that rule of being two feet apart so that's yes really yes nice. yes yeah yeah i am um, uh, no I, I went to those i hated them i hated the music i hated everything about it and then in ninth grade uh we we had a our school's class did everything for planning uh, prom. So whenever you elected your class in ninth grade, every year the project that they were all working on was making prom uh, good. And, you know, that's fine because any school board election, and I'm sorry, not school board, any like in school teenage election, like I just want to go back to every kid that took those seriously and just like officer, that's them. Like, there's no way that those people like came out all right. But uh, I, they they would plan for this prom, and they came up with an idea that they were going to hold a second homecoming dance in the spring, and all the ticket proceeds would go to this prom. But they couldn't call it homecoming, and so they called it Morp, um, because it's prom backwards. Now that doesn't make sense. Like that's not a joke. They thought that was enough. They're like, oh, no, it's called Morp because it's prom backwards. And I'm like, so is the theme backwards stuff? Right. No. No. Okay. Just the name. Because to me, that just sounds like you <laughs> fucked up a word. And now you want me to pay you for it. And right. I, I mean, granted, I, I plan on fucking up plenty of words. And I would love to get paid for this podcast. But that still feels different to me. That doesn't. <laughs> I can't. That can't be the same thing. We would have. We would have chilled. We would have kicked it, Johnny. I just know it. 
I just know it. I was just angsty and pissed. Yeah, and yeah, that, yeah that sounds about right. I was like, God dang, I got to be here another day with you people. And now uh, I feel like if I could go back <laughs> and just not like exist in my own bubble of self-consumption, I think things would have been a lot different. I think I, I would have ruled that place. I think I, I would still be as angsty and bitchy though and cynical. So I, I got such a lucky chance to uh, do that in between my 11th and 12th grade years. I got uh, accepted to the Pennsylvania Governor's School for Information Technology. And so essentially what you do is you take a freshman semester worth of three courses and they condense them over to six weeks in the summer between your 11th and 12th grade year. But for six weeks between that time, you're just at college and it's at Penn State. And they are having active classes. So you're in the dorms, just like the college kids. You're on your own for dinners and all that stuff. So like I had enough experience in college that I went back to high school and was like, this is bullshit. Like this, I knew this was bullshit before, but I couldn't prove it. And now I can prove it. And that's when I'm at my most dangerous is when I'm self-righteous and correct. Uh, And so when I came back for 12th grade, Every single person I know is like, you were absolutely a completely different person. Like that summer, like, cause I, I came back and I was like, man, none of this matters. None of these people matter. So I can just say whatever I want, like to anybody, I, I can like talk to the teachers and the worst thing that they're going to do is suspend me, which will not matter at all. There is no permanent record. There is no, like, I'm not going to be like 26 and applying for a job. And they're like, but you got detention one time for calling your shop teacher an asshole. Like, that's not ever going to happen. And so my 12th grade, that year ruled. The rest of my school, like the middle school, all the way down, it sucked. I hated it. I got made fun of for having a rat tail. In addition to that, my family let me have a rat tail for way too long. Um, it's the only time that when people are like, no, you have to be accepting of your kids. I'm like, you can be a little like not accepting. You can be, you can be a little critical. Yeah. 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 Like I want to support you, but you are now 14. You cannot have a rat tail anymore. That's just a rule. That's, That's incredible. I would love to see this rat tail. Uh, I, I accidentally, cut evidence? It. Oh, no, I don't because I accidentally got it like caught up in a brush. And I cut it because I thought that I could just cut a couple of the hairs. And I because it's a rat tail, I cut the whole thing off. Yeah. And I was so sad. And I legitimately think my family was standing around like, oh, God, no, this is a tragedy. <laughs> uh, think of the good times you had with the rat tail, Johnny. Not a single person in that room was like, don't worry, you can grow it back. Like, it was oh. just like saying goodbye to a family what? member. Like, yeah, the rat tail's gone, but one day you'll see it again. <laughs> like, <laughs> It'll be podcast fodder. That's right. So it, it'll come back and, oh, God, it's going to be everything in my life answers to that. All right. So let's get into class time. Uh, today's pop quiz. Jenny, what do you know about critical race theory? Johnny, I know apparently it's a very evil uh, operation or subject in which white people are made to feel guilty about themselves, and they start it in preschool, yep. and from there, it, they, these white children are just uh, constantly inundated with it. JK, Johnny, my understanding is it is actually a post-secondary level uh, course. In fact, it's specific, again, to my understanding. I know you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, but it's specific to law school and uh, the JD degree, and, um, you know, that it just takes a look at race theory in the law from the perspective of, um, hmm, from the perspective, I guess, critical of, uh, you know, anyway. Yeah, you, you kind of get to a point with it. Um, so I, I will say truth, that prior... It just sounds like the truth to me, and I don't know how to put that. Yes. Um, so that is... Uh almost exactly what my thoughts uh what i knew about it before kind of diving a bit deeper for what what i want to talk about today um i I will i will say that 
I was very much under the impression that there were critical race theory classes being taught in posts, uh, in, in colleges, in not even most, you know, undergrads, but most like graduate programs. I think there were only, you know, my, my knowledge was that there were a few undergrad, but in kind of trying to uh, reach across the aisle, as it were, I, I, I like to imagine, you know, I, I always try to assume that people are rational actors, right? E even if their actions are irrational, they are not just making things up out of whole cloth. Chances are they are believing something that maybe had, you know, a sliver of truth at some point. I want to try to find that. So I had a thought, you know, okay, maybe they're teaching it in these undergrad programs, but because teachers require less and less experience nowadays, because we need more and more teachers, maybe there are people that just have these like really loose undergrad experiences and they're bringing them back into their teaching jobs in K to 12. Right. I, I, I could potentially see that as being the case. And the reason that this came up um, and I I think as we move through this, I, I have to actually figure out the legality of this. So I, I don't want to do it yet. Um, but I want to maybe try to get some scans of these books that I have, because uh, these books that I picked up today, we're going to be talking about the first grade class, which is Florida Social Studies, Our Community and Beyond. Um, and the thing that I noticed right away in this is that they go out of their way when they're introducing a new race into the book, right? So, you know, to, to be very, very blunt, because it is a first grade book, it's basically, here's all the white people that come from Europe, and it's just going to be assumed that they're all white. And that's, you know, fine. For a first grade understanding, absolutely fine. And then they meet the Native Americans, and they have maybe a paragraph about how they both helped each other and everything was better because of their presence. Oh. And then... For the rest of the book, they are just referred to as one group, and it's just people. And I think that the reason for that and that type of thing, they, they do the same thing where they talk about, you know, very loosely, they talk about slaves coming over. And then they very loosely talk about how Abraham Lincoln ended the Civil War. And from that point forward, they just join this large, you know, uh, um, amorphous group of just people you know you, these are the citizens of the united states and i think the books do that because there's a fear that has been instilled in educators in the people that manufacture textbooks you know even if you want to get outside of the political conspiracy theories about how textbooks are paid for and how they're designed th there is a fear that if they wander too close to that uh, to something that could be flagged as CRT adjacent, that they're going to get in trouble for it. And so to break that down, first thing that we need to talk about is we need to talk about what critical race theory actually is. And we're going to be talking uh, a lot about a book called Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanich, I believe, uh, Stefanich, uh, S-T-E-F-A-N-C-I-C, a uh, book from huh. 2001. Okay. And here is a, a very base understanding of what critical race theory is, because it's actually not a, a post-grad course, or at least that's not how it started. Um, it actually started around the 1970s as kind of a, a thought movement, and there were conventions for it. Uh, it's kind of small gatherings, and then the first official convention was in Madison, Wisconsin in 1989 where a bunch of kind of thought leaders in the subject of what was, you know, forming as critical race theory got together to actually map out what it is. And they had a long co um, conference. There's a lot of interesting kind of insight uh, in that book into what they were discussing at that conference and how they kind of negotiated ideas. And I'm going to boil that entire uh, convention down to uh, a comparison just to kind of make things easy. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this kind of, you know, turn of phrase. Um, if you run into an asshole in the morning, you probably ran into an asshole. If you're running into assholes all day, you're probably the asshole, right? Yes. And I never thought about it until right now, but there should be an add-on to that sentence, which is, or you're black. 
because the idea of critical race theory is okay let's say you went out into the world and the first person you saw was rude to you the second person you saw was rude to you the third person you saw was rude to you i would never ever have the thought to myself i wonder if everybody is being mean to me because of my race right that would never cross my mind but if you're not white that has to be a thought that crosses your mind. And the reason that that has to be a thought is because you can make the argument all day about the type of post-racial society that we're claiming that we live in. And you can make a lot of arguments as to what you think that the interactions of non-white people in this country are because of this post-racial world that you're insisting we live in. But for the people who are actually in that situation, even if 95% of people are completely not racist, no racist thoughts in their head, etc. You still have 5% of the population that you have to question your own interactions because you don't know what that person is necessary. Like you don't understand why they are being rude to you, whether it right. is something that you're doing or whether it's just their inherent bias. And so to put that in a broader perspective, right? If you are looking you know, at the ability right now for a black family in America to purchase a home, they will on general, or in general pay more for that house than a white couple in the same area. Now, you could have a lot of arguments for why that is the case, right? You can talk about how because of the way our credit system works and the kind of inherent racism in that, the credit scores that those couples go into the purchase with are by default lower because of the system and the way that it's been run. Is that still the way the system is being run today? It's kind of irrelevant because we know it's the way the system has been run in the past and we never did anything to address it. Sure. So even if we've stopped that now, we've never actually healed the wound from before. And so you can still look at that interaction and say, okay, even if the person selling the house isn't racist, even if the bank approving the loan isn't racist, even if everything involved isn't racist, the part where their credit score is by lower or by default lower is still a racist problem, even if all the other players in this are not racist at all, right? Sure. And, and I bring that up as a counter to the idea of you know, well, I'm not racist, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm in this system and I'm tired of being told that I have all of these advantages because I'm white, my life's been very hard and I'm not racist. And my, my counter to that is it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it just doesn't because you're still in a system that at best had its foundation framed on racism and more likely is still utilizing that very racism for the benefits of capitalism to this day. Sure. Johnny, what would you say to people who say, well, anybody's credit historically, maybe you're talking about their family. You know, I, I'm very familiar with things like generational poverty. But, you know, this new person came along and they had the opportunity to have a clean slate credit just like the rest of us. And they must have ruined it, which is why their credit score is low. Uh, and and nobody's to blame for that. And that's not racist at all. What would you say to that? Because I, I hear that argument coming from somebody in particular in my life right now. <laughs> I, I will I will say this. Um, if, if you want to have a, a deep conversation with somebody in regards to that, the, the best path to go would be to say, OK, what factors influence your credit score? Right. And, and, and list them out. And OK, so debt that you have. All right. That's your credit score, payment ability, credit score, length of time, living in a location, all of those things impact your credit score. And you can go one by one through those and find elements of systemic racism that affect that. You know, again, when you are forcing a group of people, you know, via redlining, which was a very real thing 60 or 70 years ago. And, and in short, redlining is, um, there was a practice in the real estate market of literally drawing red lines on a map to section out areas where you weren't going to sell houses to black people. Right. And so you end up forcing them into these urban dense environments. Now, when you have those environments compared to a suburb, 
they, that has effects on crime rates, that has effects on education based on the way that we split out funds for our schools. Right. I can look at all of those things and say, all right, right now, even, even if what you're saying about the credit score being wiped is accurate, based on that, we're still not starting from the same spot. Right. We're, we're still not, no matter which one of the threads you want to follow from how a credit score is defined, you can immediately trace it back to, again, at best racism that we started with and more likely racism that we're still encountering. Absolutely. So the book does a good job of uh, describing what critical race theory is. And, and by the way, um, I refuse in most cases to say CRT, and it's not uh, from any kind of political uh, stance or anything like that. Um, I've been a nerd my whole life. And when I hear CRT, that's a computer monitor. Like, that's just what that is. <laughs> okay. And okay. so it legitimately, I, I apologize because it seems like I could shorten this by not saying it so much. But if I say CRT, I know how my brain works. Yeah. I will immediately in my head while I'm talking be like, man, I remember those giant monitors and I'll be done. I'm just, uh, it's that easy to derail me. I but, uh, So anyway, I'm sorry. The definition, the critical race theory movement is a collection of activists, scholars, I'm sorry, activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. And that's it. That's the entire critical race theory movement. It is analyzing the relationship between race, racism, and power. That's it. Anything else that you hear about critical race theory is just people projecting their fears of what it is. Sure. Right? So you had this uh, group, again, you know, uh, first convention in Madison, Wisconsin in 1989. One of the descriptors of that conference from the book, um, in quote, the group also built on feminism's insights into the relationship between power and the construction of social roles, as well as the unseen, largely invisible collection of patterns and habits that make up patriarchy and other types of domination. So what they're saying is at the at that time they had already seen first wave feminism and kind of the beginnings of second wave feminism and they were watching what those feminists were actually targeting right and you know it, it's it's a really interesting feminism as a movement is kind of fascinating um it's fascinating both in how it started um kind of some of the more problematic elements behind it um and then kind of how the different waves of feminism have dealt with those problematic elements and kind of tried to make it a more inclusive space. But the main drive of first wave feminism was essentially a break against um, common social structure. You know, a lot of it was the idea that women have to stay at home because that's just the way it's done. That's the way it's always been done unless you go to war and then all of a sudden the women can work. Right. But as soon as the men come back from war, everybody's just supposed to go back to the way things are. Um, and as a general rule, nothing ever goes back to the way it was ever. Yeah. I, I laughed the very first time that I heard people talk about COVID and then say, when are we going to get back to normal? This is and it. it's like, hey, normal's dead, baby. Anytime something like this happens, normal is dead. <laughs> I think that I felt the same way whenever, you know, there was this and I don't want to. Anyway, I'm just going to say what I say. Uh, you know, when I would hear people back in 2015, 16, make America great again. We need to go back to these values. We need to go back to this way. It's done. The past is the past. You can't put the cat back in the bag. It's done. We have the internet. You're never taking that away from anyone. It's not going to work. We have, we have to adjust to what is and learn to navigate this. We're going to have to learn to raise our kids in it. We're going to have to learn to confront some things because it's done. It's just what's there is done. It's over. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I always, I, I really, um, I really enjoy trying to, um, the, the daily show this decades ago now did, did an amazing segment about this where essentially the point of the segment was going up to people and saying, you know, Everybody talks about the wonderful past, right? Oh, things are you know terrible now. Things were so much better in the blank, right? 60s, 50s, 40s. And, and what they learned is that everybody's viewpoint, whenever anybody talked about how good things used to be, they're just talking about when they were kids, right? right. Like 
Right. Will, it'll be like, oh, you know, things were so much simpler in the 50s. And it's like, well, yeah, you were 11. Right. Like, <laughs> like I, I, know, I know I talked a lot of shit on, you know, K-12 education at the beginning of this as far as my interactions with it. But life was very easy. I will tell you that. Like, a, as an adult... Man, I remember being in college and being told out of college I could get a job making $37,000 a year. And I was sitting in that room going, motherfucker, I'm going to be rich. $37,000 a year. If I'm doing the math, right, $37,000 a year, a house costs $150,000. I don't know what I was basing that on. But yeah. I was like, I'm going to have to work for five years, and then I can That's buy a house. Yeah. I know that math seems stupid, <laughs> but don't worry. I added that $7,000 each year to the five years that it would be the overage for the budget of $150K. That's $35,000, baby. That's got to be enough for all my other utilities and food. Just Scrooge hey. McDuck, just swimming in your in your pile of coins. Just swimming in my pile of gold coins, it's, which the actual feeling of belly flopping onto a pool full of metal was very yeah. much my introduction to adult life. It was very Scrooge McDuckian in that exact one way. <laughs> so that's oh god, I love that. So um. So yeah, so the the kind of initial uh, underpinnings of that feminism movement of fighting against the social construct is what they were looking at in the beginnings of the critical race theory movement in that you had this idea of, okay, even if systems aren't designed in a racist fashion now, are there elements of them that are built on racism? And the theory, the movement ends at recognizing that, right? That's the other thing. Critical race theory as a movement is not prescriptive. It is just descriptive. This is a thing that exists, right? Nobody has to feel bad. Nobody has to feel guilty, right? It Critical just race, is. It just, it just is. is. Even as a movement, there's no critical race theory movement that is calling for reparations, Right. right. The idea of that is, okay, well, they have used critical race theory and they have identified all of these problems. And now that they have identified those, now you can create an action plan, right? But whether or not you want to follow that action plan, right? You might think reparations are stupid and I don't have enough time to get into all of those sides of that argument now. But even if you think that that's stupid, all critical race theory is asking of you is, do you recognize that those initial statements are true, right? And if they are true, what is the impact on now? And one of the things that we, you know, that I want to talk about when you are talking about critical race theory is what does whiteness mean, right? Um, my hero, my personal idol, Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, um, I say that so that somebody can clip that out and play it later when I'm at inevitable trial for treason and be like, oh, Johnny loves Governor DeSantis. Love he said it this one time. Besties. Um, and now that I've said that, uh, I can switch immediately over to fuck that guy. Um, he made a comment about how he is not going to have a state where it's not okay to be white, right? Something along those lines. What? And. It, it, talking about uh, like uh, either that or like I don't want a state where kids are made to feel guilty for being white, something Aww. along those lines. Oh, yeah. And, and and my immediate thought to that, other nobody than feels guilty, nobody feels guilty. Nope, nobody feels guilty, right? White guilt is the dumbest concept, right? Um, but my first thought, other than um, you fragile little snowflakes, uh, which is the best way to describe that wing of modern conservatism. I, I love that they created that word. And after about 10 years, everybody's looking around. And it's like, oh, the people bitching and crying all the time are those people screaming snowflake a lot. Mm. And we just get to turn that right back around. It's mm. great. It's delightful. Mm. Um, but our, our sensitive little snowflake, if I could ask him any question, I would love to ask him, what does white mean? Because throughout our history, white has meant many things, right? And the idea of whiteness is built on exclusivity, right? It's never been built on inclusion. You are not white because you are a certain group. You are white because you are not a certain group, 
right? That's also the reason that it's kind of a built-in culturally accepted thing that if you are a child of a biracial marriage, most people are not going to identify you as white, right? right. If you are particularly light-skinned, very possibly, but even then, if people find out, you know, there's a reason that on, you know, tax forms, there's two or more races, right? Like, even when we are doing our best to be inclusive, we still have to drive home that fact that if you are white and something else, do not check the white box, right? We have a separate box for you. Yeah. Um, and that's how whiteness has always worked. And so right now, whiteness is essentially defined as, are you light enough? Right. I, I am one of the whitest people I know. If I was any whiter, I'd be translucent. I qualify by default. Right. I have some friends that um, if they tan too long in the summer, they will probably get confused for being Hispanic um, of some origin. And in the winter, that mistake would never be made, right? So I feel like those people would probably get included in, right? But it's all very vague. I can't just say people from this country are white because, well, first of all, um, white people did a really good job of moving themselves all over the world and moving the rest of the world all around the world uh, in forms of labor. And so the idea that there are white countries, we... We kind of we kind of undid that forever. Um, so you know what are you gonna do? Uh, in the early twentieth century, if you were Irish, you were not white. If you were Italian, you were super not white, yeah. right? And all the way up through you know, well, before, during, and after World War II, and in a lot of cases still today, if you're Jewish, you're not white, right? And, you know, in theory, you know, because Judaism, is, or I'm sorry, the idea of being Jewish, there's being Jewish as a religion and being Jewish as a ethnicity. But it absolutely, you know, as you know, myself, I spend a lot of time monitoring far right stuff online. It does not make a difference to them. Um, it does not matter if you are just religiously Jewish. Uh, that's you are not white anymore. Right. That's just the rule. Um <laughs> And, and and you can see one of the things that is uh, really interesting about kind of watching these movements progress is that you have people like uh, Nick Fuentes. And if you don't know who Nick Fuentes is, he sucks. Don't worry about it. But you can tell by the name Nick Fuentes that it would be really weird if that dude was a white supremacist. Sure. And yet he is a white supremacist. And yet. Right? And yet. And, and yet he is a white supremacist. Um he seems to not understand that if they kicked out all of what he considers to be the non-white people out of the country, yeah. the, the white people that are left will start trying to find another group to exclude, yeah. right? And I'm just taking a guess. If your last name is something like Fuentes, you're not going to be low on the list of people they're going after. You're, you're probably going to make that first or second cut. And they just don't realize that, right? Yeah. And, and that's another really interesting aspect of critical race theory as a movement is, well, if you go back and you find all of these laws that were specifically written for the benefit of white people, it is important to know what that included at the time because that has repercussions all the way until now in addition to what we generally assume with critical race theory. And so I, I really hope to anybody listening to this that that doesn't sound like a, a crazy concept, right? That you're going to look at the past and you're going to admit the things that were done just because we're stating facts, right? And then what we do with those facts after that, that's a separate conversation. Nobody had a problem with this for the most part, right? When, when, when you try to do searches um, on right-wing news sites, like you can go through Breitbart's archives. And I tried to find articles about critical race theory. Um, and you don't really find a lot. It comes up every once in a while, up until about 2019-ish. Apologies, I had to grab a drink to save these sonorous tones. Um, in uh, 2019-2020, <sighs> this motherfucker. 
named Christopher Rufo. This motherfucker. We are going to talk about Christopher Rufo for a fucking moment. Okay. Because Christopher Rufo is um, somebody that most people haven't heard of. And I would understand why most people haven't heard of. Christopher Rufo is uh, a part of the Heritage Foundation. And if you don't know what the Heritage Foundation is, they are a kind of right wing think tank as it as it is right um the heritage foundation is they they do work in crafting legislation they do work in hosting you know conventions kind of like what the first critical race theory convention would have been where you just have thought leaders that come together right the heritage foundation is founded by the Koch brothers okay we are going to bring up the Koch brothers many 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 times okay throughout this uh podcast i am sure of it uh to the point that i'm relatively sure that if we end up designing a bingo card for these podcast episodes yeah. you can just go ahead and put the coke brothers in that free space because that shit's just gonna happen yeah um these guys and particularly charles coke uh fucking suck and they are responsible for so much of what we are going through. They are involved in the formation of the Tea Party. They are involved in the Obama birth certificate bullshit. They are involved in the Iraq war. Like every single dog shit thing that anybody right wing adjacent has done for the last like 50 years you can look back at either Fred Koch, which is the father, or one of the brothers, generally Charles Koch, and one of those fuckers has bankrolled it somehow, right? Um, Koch Industries is a refining company. I'm sure we'll dive into them at some point. But I bring that up because it's going to be important in just a little bit for why I think Christopher Rufo does this kind of shit. Because Christopher Rufo went on Tucker Carlson in 2019, early 2020, and basically said that the number one threat to our public schools, where I, I will sadly remind you, shootings happen frequently. But to Christopher Rufo, the number one threat was critical race theory, right? Yeah. And he's really yeah, one of the sure. first guys to go on and say it by name and kind of make it a target. And because of his appearances and, you know, because of, the fact that we had a president that did nothing but watch Fox News 24 hours a day or or the five hours he was awake. Who knows? Yeah. Trump invites this dude to the White House and essentially meets with him and eventually from those meetings drafts what becomes the executive order that starts the 1776 commission which is the group that Trump appointed that was dedicated to, quote, teaching patriotic education. Oh. Which that phrase should terrify anybody. Mm -hmm. It does. It does. It look just it's serving North Korea, Johnny. <laughs> God, I I look back. Well, one of these days we will have a longer conversation, maybe when we get to around the time that it was introduced, about how weird I think it is that we say the Pledge of Allegiance. Every get day me started. Get me started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 dive, we'll dive into that sometime. That, that'll be that'll Thank be fun. You, but um, so Trump uh releases this executive order forming the 1776 commission and christopher rufo goes on twitter and and among the things that he says he says quote the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory great because his whole goal he, he knows this is nothing but he knows that if you can just bring up any example of a race related anything in school and go, ah, critical race theory, right? right? Everybody will freak the fuck out. Right. That strategy you'll notice does not have anything involved with it about like how to fix the curriculum, right? If you don't like CRT ugh, ugh, monitors and back, if you don't like that, what are you going to teach instead? And they never have an answer. And the reason they don't have an answer is that Christopher Rufo and the Koch brothers and a lot of these right wing ding dongs, don't give a shit about critical race theory. That's not their problem. Their problem is public schools. And so what they want to do is they just want people to think that public schools are crazy and that public schools are just this untamed wasteland, right? It's the same reason that they don't actually want to do anything to make schools safer because that's not the actual goal. They don't want... To 
they don't want to talk about a new curriculum, right? That actually, you know, you'll hear uh, politicians bring that up. Like we're going to have a curriculum that puts, you know, America first in education. It's like, okay, what does that curriculum exist? Like, can we see, you know, in Florida, the books that got rejected, can we see what those books are and why they were rejected? No, no. Like, okay. So you're not actually interested in this process. You just want people to hear about public schools and have that gut reaction of like (laughs) public schools. That's crazy. Right. Um, Christopher Rufo has also said, quote, to get to universal school choice, right, which little quick interlude is uh, to do with the school voucher program mm-hmm. and the idea of having the government fund private schools. Yeah. Um, so to start that quote over to get to universal school choice, you really need to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust. Right. The reason if this guy had just been the guy who first went on Tucker Carlson's show and said this dumb shit, I probably wouldn't bring him up. The reason that Christopher Rufo is important is because Christopher Rufo is also the same motherfucker that is the reason that you can't go 10 seconds without hearing the word groomer online. Oh, good. Because Christopher Rufo is the same dude who essentially has guided the right wing platform on LGBTQ stuff right now Mm. to the point that he has recently been appointed to Ron DeSantis's board on college education. Um, so he's still around and he's still doing the same exact shit. And I wanted to make that connection really, really clear because again, same with the LGBTQ stuff, they will talk about how you can't say, you know, they, the don't say gay bill, right? The reason that I had such a big problem with it was actually less because of what I thought it would restrict teachers from talking about. Because I personally, right, in first in first to third grade, I don't remember learning about homosexuality at no. all. Um, I, I remember knew, learning about any sexuality. Right, exa- exactly, right? Mm-hmm. I, I knew nothing of that at all. Um, but the impression that it gives is that these conversations are happening at public school all the time. Right. And if it wasn't for this legislation, your kids would go to school and they they would come they would come home and you know fill in whatever horribly ignorant thing they would say. Johnny, I have heard from right-wing members of my family that uh, children are being taught for one through three uh, grade how to masturbate. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what they think. And as a former public school teacher, and I taught in the elementary setting for multiple years, half my career was spent in the elementary setting. Uh, I can assure you, we never taught that. <laughs> and, and I can tell you as a former masturbation teacher, I was never invited <laughs> to any schools whatsoever. <laughs> so those Venn diagram circles, they just never overlap. Right, right, right. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't couldn't not do that. Uh, but this guy makes me so frustrated because when you really look at it, right, it, this is the same exact goal, right? It's never presenting a solution, right? Whether it is this LGBTQ stuff or whether it is the critical race theory stuff, the goal is never to present a solution. The goal is just to make it seem like public schools are absolute nonsense, right? Well, Johnny, if you can make people afraid that their identity or, or, I mean, which is just so ironic is at stake. Uh, you know, they will, they will get crazy and, and understandably so, I mean, it's certainly happening to the other degree where individuals, you know, who are different than them, uh, you know, they're, they're fighting for their right to their own identity. So I, I can, I can understand that, you know, when we are afraid that what we believe all these things that we are grounded in and our very identity might be at stake. Um, yeah. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to fight for what you believe in. Yeah. And, and I do, you know, in, in trying to, in trying to think about this topic um, again, I, for my own mental health, I assume that people are rational actors. I also, you know, for as much you know, I'll talk a lot of trash about the country, about, you know, people. And, and, you know, for the most part, you know, I I really want to emphasize that, you know, a lot of that's more for humor, more for just simple general uh, generalization, because I actually believe that most people are good, right? Um, I also believe that 
There is a scam for everyone. There is a cult for everyone. It is just a matter of somebody finding the thing that is your, you know, uh, your weak spot, right? What it, What is your particular kryptonite, you know? Um, somebody really, really close to me uh, finally got a job after God, almost a year of searching. And she was texting me after the fact that on her second or third day of her job, somebody texted her and said, hey, you know, this is your boss, right? Using the boss's full name, using the company's name. Yeah. Um, I know you're new. I know you don't have a credit card yet, but I really need your help. Uh, I'm at this conference no. right? and I need no. to give these gift cards away. Yep. So, but I'm stuck at the conference, yeah, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. And I, that person immediately ran and bought all those gift cards and even as they were telling me about it, they were like, it's a fucking gift card scam. But in that moment, when you are on day three and you have been without work for a year and you're like, my CEO is asking me to do something right. and I can't tell them no because I'm in my probationary period at work. And if I lose this job, I'll starve to death. Yeah. And it's just one of those things that it can catch you at the right moment. In, in, I mean, in, there's a reason they do it. Correct. And not everybody who falls for something is stupid or bad. It's just like you said, there's so many factors. It's just a very human thing to, I mean, you know. And, and if, if you're ever somebody who thinks that would never happen to me, right? I'm not somebody who would get suckered in. I, I can actually prove every single person wrong. And that is, I think everybody has one celebrity, right, who's been quote-unquote canceled, right, which is not a real thing, but that's another podcast. It, when you think of somebody who has been canceled who is actually a monster, right? I, I think for a lot of people, it's Bill Cosby, right? That, that's, a, that's a really obvious one. Good example, yeah. If you are somebody who said out loud or to a friend, I can't believe he did that, guess what? You got suckered by a con man. Absolutely. Right. Because you got suckered by somebody who was able to convince enough people that he wasn't a monster, that he was allowed to break the cultural framework of our society. That's how good he was at conning. For a while. For a while. For a long while. For a bad right? minute, yeah. And, and so, but you know, there's a lot. I oddly enough, there are people that that was the case with OJ Simpson, right? Because if all you know about him is he dude was a badass football player, and then he was in those awesome naked gun movies, I could understand being like, that guy allegedly murdered his wife. Like that's I mean, wild. My Gigi went to her grave believing OJ was innocent, bless her heart. Right. And so everybody has that thing. And when it comes to politics, right? All of those things are based on fear. Everybody is taking advantage of a fear, right? In a lot of those cases. And that's how con men generally operate. In this case, the fear is that who you are is being erased. And that's just not true. I have never, ever met a trans individual that has refused to identify that I am a cisgendered male. Right. That's never happened because they are not looking to exclude. They are not looking to even bring in more people into the group other than people that they are just ready to accept who they are. Right. right? But there is no movement to like for, you know, for a simpler way to put it, no gay person has ever come up to me. And I had me you know, where I say I'm straight and they go, I'll work on that. <laughs> Like, you know, you get some lascivious people at bars and stuff sure. like that. And, and by all means, if you want to talk shit on pickup culture, regardless of orientation, I will join you there. Right. But as an overall movement, gay pride parades are not recruiting events. Right. And they never have been. Right. That That's just not what that group does. And so. Why, why Why? did I bring all this up? Why did I want to include this as kind of an addendum to that first episode we put out? Um, what I kind of realized as I was reading through these books is I direly do not want this podcast to fall into the trap that Christopher Rufo is trying to set. 
And that trap would be our public schools are a nightmare. Nobody should be in them. Um, and I understand that if I'm presenting the information that's from these textbooks, that somebody might get the impression that, you know, I think that, that I think public schools are a waste. And that is just absolutely not the case. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that we could do better with public schools. I think that there are options that we can present that would do a lot more for our students and do a lot more for people that are coming up in a world that is nothing like the world that we grew up in. But that is not to say, you know, that's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's just, I want to talk specifically about this one thing. And I don't want anybody to walk away from this podcast feeling like they should have a distrust of public schools. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't want that to be the case. Again, we are not, you know, just like with critical race theory, I am not going to be using this podcast to prescribe a solution to this. But if we are going to be talking about solutions, we need to be talking honestly about the problem. And that's the goal of what this is. Ta-da, the prestige. I, I love it. I'm a big fan of accepting what is in that moment, um, being able to just be rigorously honest about it, because I think that that's the only way forward. So Johnny, with that in mind, let me just ask, so when you're looking at a first grade curriculum, a, you know, and we're seeing, okay, well, they go from, you know, here's these, <clears throat> we're going to identify that there are white people, white, uh, we're assuming white Europeans, and then, uh, you know, Native Americans, and then they're just people. Do you think there's a different way to present it to be more culturally sensitive, to be more progressive, more honest? Do you really think there's a way to do that at a first grade level? I just... Obviously, there are people who are going to think, hey, man, I don't think first grade is a good time to bring up slavery. You know, they're kids like it's it's a heavy topic. That's a that's heavy. You know, we're just we're just trying to get them in here and sit still and go from crayons to pencils. You know, I've been an elementary teacher and I'm like, I'm just trying to get some really basic classroom stuff down and just kind of begin to inspire learning and get some basics down. I'm not sure, you know, that, uh, the, the, the sorry, you'll have to edit this. No, out. no. Um, that, so, this will, that this is something I'm ready to, to bring up, you know, something like slavery. Yeah. So, um, something that I've thought about, you know, I, I have been, as I've read through these books, something that I've tried to be mindful of is I, I do think that it is a bad idea to introduce uh, six-year-olds to the broadest spectrum of human cruelty. <laughs> I, I think that that's probably like a bad uh, idea. I think that you can be very, very broad, right? I think the thing to be more careful about is that you don't use that space to lionize people that don't deserve the, the kind of heroic status um, that we've given them. Right. So gotcha. I can tell you in the first grade book, you know, one of the first things that it talks about is Christopher Columbus. Mm. And, you know, I, I can have a debate all day about when do you teach slavery, right? In school, when do you teach, you know, the genocide of the native American people? Mm. Um, I, I think there are a lot of good answers to that. I think that the answer to when do you teach people that Christopher Columbus was a good person is never. Um, and so if that just means that in those books, you say the Europeans came over to America, right? And just leave him out of it. Fine. Right. Um, I will say that kids are more capable, at least, you know, and again, I'm not a parent. I, I just have my outside experience. And what I recall of being a child, kids have more of a depth for understanding that than I think we give them credit for. Give them credit for absolutely. I, I think there's an idea of, you know, trying to save the purity of childhood, right, for a, a kid. Right. And, you know, I can tell you that I, I can't remember if it was my fifth or sixth birthday, but it was something like that, um, was the day of my grandma's funeral, right? It was either my grandma or my uncle Jim. Um, I can't remember. I, I apologize for being harsh on or lack on details but it almost kind of serves the point once you have a close family member's funeral on your birthday the idea that the childhood innocence 
is still like a thing that people and everybody has something like that right everybody has their you know oh i was in a car accident right and so i i watched i was six years old i watched somebody get really screwed up in a car accident it, it's and kids are malleable right so yeah. no you don't have to get super in-depth but i think in first grade it is perfectly fine to say you know in colonizing the americas we took people as slaves and it was wrong like that's that's all you have to do we shouldn't have done that we took slaves and it was wrong and we can expand on that later on absolutely and i will tell you now with all the confidence in the world kids generally don't push you on that they don't try to get any deeper they really don't at that age. Right. They're just like, okie dokie. And they just keep it moving. That's why whenever people are like, oh my God, we can't teach kids like that there are gay families. Let me tell you what, all you got to do is be like, you know, when my kids were little and I had a gay best friend and she was married to a woman, you know, my kids were like, oh, you know, Lily has two mommies. And I'm like, yeah. So you know how daddy and I love each other? Well, Lily's mommies love each other like that. So they're both two mommies instead of a mommy and daddy. And I, I swear to you, they were like, okie dokie. And they just keep it moving. They don't ask more. They don't like, they're just picking their nose, man. Yeah. And, and kids, you know, they, they don't have the stack of biases that we have, nor, you know, at that age. Uh, and, and I, I can, I can prove it. Right. Um, I heard recently, right. Um, for my job, I, I, I'm trying to think. I I almost revealed more about my job than I initially meant to. Um, so about apologies for that. But uh, you know, for my job, I, I travel to a lot of places, right? And I get to talk to a lot of different people and a lot of different backgrounds. And one of the things that somebody told me was, well, you know, nowadays in school, all the boys you can't go home until you've tried on a dress, right? Yeah, that was something I'd heard. Okay. And that struck me as odd for a bunch of reasons. Um, one of them being um, women. We've done a lot of terrible things to women uh, as men uh, throughout the years. Um, skirts are just inherently better than pants. They're just more comfortable. Like they just, they are, they are a better choice. If any school was like, you can't leave here until you've tried on a dress. The second half of that sentence is because all of your legs look so uncomfortable. <laughs> like we're direly trying to help your legs here. Right. Um, but but when I was how in, many countries men literally wear robes. They wear dresses. Okay. They are wearing right. dresses. There is not. Call it a robe. These, it's a dress. Keep it moving. I'm not here for that. Right. There's not one of these hyper-masculine fucks that would look at Braveheart and be like, that little girl. Right. Like, like it's, it's so ridiculous. It's such an absurd thing. But then I had the thought in first grade on, I think it was the last day of school, right? We just did a, you know, dick around. It, it, it was almost like a track and field day. But if all of the sports were invented by like a lazy Saturday dad. Yeah, and so good. one of them, one of the events was literally just all the girls lined up in a line and all the boys lined up in a line. And in front of them was a kiddie pool that had the other genders clothes. Right. And like big, like big clothes. And yeah. so all the girls had to go, they had to put on the suit. And then once the teacher said like, Oh, the suit's fully on, they would take it on and the next person would go on, but they put it on over their clothes. Gotcha. Right. And then the boys had this dress and because that's only a single piece, they also had, I want to say it was like a tiara and a wand, right? Gotcha. I remember leaving that experience and then not thinking about it again for maybe a decade because <laughs> sure. it just wasn't a huge part of my life. Right. And I don't think I thought about it again until the first time I heard somebody like reference like, oh, you know, kids in school get, you know, blah, blah. and just thinking like, that's literally a thing that happened to me and I'm not trans. And right. to the best of my knowledge, the Chicago school district U46 is not a, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, breeding ground for trans people. Like it's right. just, it was just a dumb but thing. Can you, imagine, can you imagine a school trying to do that now on like their little field day on like a little bit? Can you even know? There's I, no, I, can you I, imagine I, the letters? I, they, they, they would have burned, uh, 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, they probably would have burned all the U46 schools. So I was trying to think of that first one I went to, but I really could have named any of them because they would have just been like, fuck the schools. And Christopher Rufo would have had the best day of his life. So that is that is the end that is the end of my content today. Um, if we are assigning uh, some homework related to this, uh, I will I will say if you get a chance to read um, that book, Critical Race Theory and Introduction. Um, again, that's by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanchich. I really wanted to mess up that last name one more time, but that's S T E F A N C I C. Um, go ahead and give that uh, a read if you want. Um, I, I found a lot of the stuff in there to be really, really interesting. Other than that, um, fun homework for the upcoming week. We did some recommendations on the last episode, and these are going to drop on the same day. So don't have to dive too, too deep. But uh, any any entertainment stuff that you'd like to recommend for people? Anything fun to bring them through the week? I would. I have been listening to a podcast that I'm absolutely in love with. And I just want to, you know, because I love other creators and maybe one day somebody's going to be on here and going, you got to listen to Jenny and Johnny get back to school. So I'm going to do that for, for someone else. And this podcast is called The Edge of Sleep. And Edge it sleep. stars Mark Fishbach. Are you now most people don't know that name, but are you familiar with the YouTuber Markiplier? No. Okay. That's okay. My kid, I have teenagers. And so we've been a Markiplier home for a while. Yeah, you'll have to forgive me. I haven't been cool in like 25 years, so you're going to have to fill me back. I tell you what, kids will keep you cool. They will keep you current. Anyway, uh, he's got a, really an incredible voice. And this podcast is about, uh, it's kind of, it's not really futuristic. It takes place now, but it's definitely sci-fi. And what happens is anyone who is asleep uh, dies. And there are people who are not asleep. They're still awake. One of them is a nurse. One guy, one of them is a guy with insomnia. And so all these people are starting to realize in the middle of the night, I think it's about 4 a.m., that anyone who was in bed asleep at the time has now passed away and they have to fight sleep to stay alive and figure out how to, uh, you know, how to stay alive, what to do. It is incredible. It is an excellent podcast. Again, it's called The Edge of Sleep. Very entertaining. And uh, I actually listen to it to go to sleep. So I have to listen to the episodes over and over because I fall asleep halfway through. And they're not boring, but that's just what I do is listen to podcasts to go to sleep. And it is just, it is an excellent uh, piece of fiction. Awesome. Um, I, I will, I will trade a like for like. Um, I, I also uh, enjoy boosting other creators. Uh, I'm going to boost a podcast that uh, will arguably uh, be more popular than uh, most podcasts. I'm, I'm shocked that something this niche can be as popular as it is, but the Knowledge Fight podcast. Um, Knowledge Fight, uh, hosted by Dan Friesen and Jordan Holmes. Uh, absolutely incredible podcast that started by taking every day's episode of InfoWars, uh, the Alex Jones program. They just take those episodes and then they play clips from them and go, here's where he's lying. Here's what he's lying about. And the reason that the show is so fascinating is because just like what will probably happen on this show, the same names come up a lot, right? And so you end up like I found out more about Roger Stone than I ever expected to know oh. in my entire life. Okay. And and that is because of the Knowledge Fight podcast, right? And so when people like that, the reason I know about Nick Fuentes, Stuart Rhodes, you know, all these people that are, you know, becoming unfortunately more and more relevant I, I know all of that because of this podcast and um dan friesen does a majority of the research and stuff for the show and i just think he's incredible um the research that he does is inspiring so um since there's only two episodes of this so far uh, i think there are like 700 ish episodes of knowledge fight and they're all between like one and three hours long um Ooh. I've listened to that entire back catalog and I'm doing mentally great. So if you want to follow me to mental greatness, uh, listen to 2100 hours of knowledge fight. Then, okay. uh, and, and I'll see you in hell. I think is how that ends. <laughs> all right. I love it. I love it. Well, that is all for today. Jenny, as always, thank you so much for being here. Thank you Absolutely. to everybody uh, who's listening. I'm um, going to have to start doing this at the end of the show. Uh, please, please do us a favor on any app that you're using to listen to this podcast. 
uh, please rate and review. It helps us out a lot. Um, those kind of ratings and reviews really help drive us up in search results. And we want to tell as many people about this as possible. Um, also live very much by the motto of uh, each one teach one. Uh, so if you like this show, share it with somebody as well. Um, and even if you don't like the show, leave a five-star review. Uh, if you don't have a five-star <laughs> review to leave, nice. just leave a five stars and then your favorite chicken soup recipe. Ooh, and, okay. and we'll know in our heart, you still help us out, which I appreciate, but we'll also know in our heart that you're not a really big fan of us and we'll take that critique. Uh, and I will end up with a bunch of delicious chicken soup recipes. So win-win for everybody here. Uh, until next time, uh, I am Johnny. That has been Jenny. Go out, find interesting stories, or get to work creating your own. Thanks, guys. Take care.